June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. This week on The Takeout, Lynn Bufka is a psychologist. We're going to talk about the therapeutic side of coping with COVID-19. Five, four, three, two, one, zero, ignition. Major Garrett, yes, CBS, yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major. Fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. And boy, is it a different kind of broadcast week for all of us across the country. Certainly at this show, Therapy News Division in America, through everyone who is working or not working or thrown into this COVID-19 place of uncertainty. Hello, I'm Major Garrett coming to you from my apartment in downtown Washington, D.C. You know, dear listeners, uh, this show has historically been built around meals in restaurants because it's always been my belief that meals bring out the best in conversation. That's what we've always tried to give you each and every week. Well, I don't need to tell you here in Washington and in many places around the country, going to a restaurant for a conversation, not possible. We are living in a new normal. And uh, this show is, as you come to know and expect, two things, relentlessly curious and steadfastly non-ideological. Well, we're going to take the politics out of it this week. This show is devoted entirely to helping you cope with this new reality. I'm not quite sure yet it's a new normal, but it's certainly a new reality, and we're all dealing with it in real time. And so our guest this week, not a headline-grabbing name, but someone who I think can help all of us understand some of the things we're going through psychologically and offer some practical tips on approaching this new situation, maybe creating for ourselves psychologically something that feels a bit new normal. Her name is Lynn Bufka. She is a PhD in psychology. She has a very uh, important title with the American Psychological Association. Lynn, it's great to have you with us. Tell my audience what that title is and a little bit about your background. Good morning. Thank you for having me. This is, uh, I'm Lynn Bufka. I'm a licensed psychologist, but my work with the American Psychological Association, I'm the senior director for practice research and policy. So I work on all kinds of things as it relates to the provision of psychological services and how to help our member psychologists best meet the demands for clinical practice. Uh, Of course, that's what we need to do right now is very different from what we were doing even a month ago in terms of thinking about what what do our members really need in order to best provide care and ensure that the public has access to mental health services as we adapt our practices in an era of COVID-19 as well. Obviously, dear listeners, uh, you hear this sounds a bit different. Obviously, I'm at home at my laptop. Lynn is in her office on her laptop. My dear friend and producer Arden Fari is at him at his home on his laptop. All of this is being done in a new sort of way. And um, Lynn, I want to start with you on this just general, the most general sense of adaptation. We're all adapting to different things. If you could offer a kind of helpful hierarchy to our listeners about how adaptation works and the kind of things uh, that are helpful to think about as you're adapting to a new way of living. I know that's very general, but I thought we'd start broadly and then maybe narrow down as we got more precise. Sure, sure. I mean, it's important to think about, about the fact that people are incredibly adaptable. We have people who live and thrive in the Arctic. We have people who live and thrive in the tropics. So we have great capacity as human beings to adapt to this situation. But it's hard right now because it's new. It's fairly uncertain. It's somewhat ambiguous. We don't really know how long we need to adapt. So all of that 
makes it feel more challenging, which is why we really need to return to what keeps us going and healthy at the most foundational level. And by that, I mean, we need to think about how do we ensure regular sleep, good nutrition, physical activity, and social support and connection. Those are the things that keep us healthy, both physically and mentally, and really need to be the foundation of what we do as we try to adapt to everything that's changing around us. So, Lynn, I want to ask you about rituals. Um, first of all, for the audience's uh, knowledge, I have a therapist. I've had one for many years. There's no, I say that without any hesitation whatsoever. My job is stressful, and my therapist and I have lots of conversations about not only incorporating uh, healthful ways of thinking through my subconscious and active daily psychology, but also bigger issues. And one of the, we had a session yesterday also via Skype um, because that's where things are happening now. And I happened to offhandedly mention that this, the morning yesterday, as I was working from home, I showered, uh, put on uh, suit pants and a dress shirt. And my therapist said, good, I'm going to compliment you on that right away because rituals matter. Do they? And can they just at a very baseline level, Lynn, be helpful at a time like this? Oh, absolutely. Having a routine that works for you and keeping that routine is really going to help right now. For anyone who's a parent, you have probably seen how your children do much better if they have a routine, if, it, if life is fairly predictable, if they know we're going to go here at this time, that in the morning you're going to get up, bedtime is at this time, you wind up not having the arguments about going to bed if you've got a routine with your kids. It's the same thing for us as adults, having a routine and structuring your day so that you can do the things that you feel you need to be doing under this new change. For some people, that's going to be working remotely. For other people, it's going to be figuring out how am I going to manage while I don't have a job, or how am I going to figure out how to teach my kids while they're home? So the routines may be different than what they were last week, two weeks, a month ago, but figuring out a routine that works for you and for others in your household will really go a long way towards finding some stability in a time where things feel very uncertain. Helpful to work out conversations about those routines? I mean, actually say it out loud? Oh, absolutely. You know, if you live by yourself, you have to be accountable to yourself around the routine. If you live with others, you're then balancing different people's needs in a brand new environment, really, if you're going to be at home all the time with one another. And how do you satisfy or at least make an attempt to meet the basic needs of all the people in your home. So that for some people might mean each person needs to have their own space, even if it's a corner of the dining room table, that's theirs where they get to work, do what they need to do. Uh, Accommodating sort of new sleep patterns because people may shift to, you know, night owl kinds of tendencies or early bird tendencies if they don't have external demands on their time. That might work in your household, but having an understanding of who's doing what and when will help everyone manage their expectations in a time where it's going to be very stressful. And if I heard you correctly, I want to zero in on this a little bit. Uh, It's almost like, okay, uh, here's your office space. It's much smaller. It doesn't look like your regular office, but here's your corner of the table. That's or that's your school table um, because. That's what we're doing now. We're kind of incorporating the outside world to our inside world and trying to make it, if not, well, it can't be exactly like, but it can replicate that experience or that sense of space. Absolutely. And and as you started off with talking about showering and putting on professional clothes, that makes a huge difference for a lot of people who are still working but are at home. You know, if you're in your pajama pants all day, it may feel comfy and cozy, but you may not feel quite as professional or on top of your game. You have to figure out what works for you in order to manage something that's very ambiguous right now. Yeah, for me, it just was like I'm getting ready for work. So part of my preparation for getting ready for work is to suit up for it. And so I felt like that was a ritual that was helpful for me. And I would say at the margins, and look, a lot of this right now, we're exploring things at the margin. It was helpful for me. Oh, absolutely. And I have found for me, getting up and starting my workday at the same time every day, as if I was going into my office has been very beneficial because my work, I could do it at all different kinds of hours, but I'm trying very hard to stick to not constantly working. Having a set time when I start work and having a set time when I end work has been very helpful for me. And uh, 
let my audience have an insight into this idea of confinement, uh, because even if you can work out these sort of geographic things, well, this is your corner of the desk, and these are our hours, and these are our rituals, confinement in itself is a psychological state of mind. It sure is. And part of what helps people at this time is to realize that the purpose of the social distance, the physical distancing is what I like to think of it as, of the stay-at-home orders that many people are under, is that this is really for a larger good. We are trying to do something for the entire nation, for our state, for our community, and helping keep that in mind while we're feeling confined helps to reduce that negative aspect of the that mental idea of confinement to some extent. It doesn't fix it, but it does help us manage the experience of feeling like we're in a quarantine or we're being isolated in some way to realize that it the intention of it is to really benefit people who are particularly vulnerable right now and to ensure that our healthcare system maintains the resources that are needed in order to treat the number of individuals who could have very significant consequences if they get the virus. That's the voice of Lynn Bufka, our special guest, a psychologist. We're working through all the things we're adapting to here at The Takeout. That's the end of segment one. Back for segment two in just a second. Hello, folks. It's Major Garrett. You know, one of the great perks of hosting the takeout is getting to eat the best of what Washington, D.C. has to offer. The restaurant industry, as all of us know, has been a huge supporter of this show and has been hit especially hard by the coronavirus outbreak. And we here at the takeout want to do what little we can to help those in need. So we invite you, as I have, to make a contribution to the Worker Relief Fund that is being coordinated by the Restaurant Association of Metropolitan Washington. They are collecting money to help offset the losses to furloughed and laid-off restaurant workers throughout the D.C. region. Here's their website. It's ramw.org. Again, ramw.org. We can and will post a link on our Twitter page where you can donate. Thanks so very much. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. You know, um, this show has historically been about uh, big names in politics or pop culture. And what I'm going to do for the duration of this COVID-19 situation is try to create shows that are the most helpful, that are the most responsive to what I intuit are the needs of the audience. Um, Some of that will be about health. Some of it will be about today's topic, which is psychology and sort of therapeutic, practical ways to deal with this new situation, maybe get it to a new normal. We have Lynn Bufka, who is a PhD in psychologist, a very important title with the American Psychological Association. For those of you listening on radio who maybe just heard it or are coming into the segment too, always know that you can go to our podcast platforms, catch up on the entire show. Every single great podcast platform out there has it. If you need any help finding the show, the simple, easiest way to find it, takeoutpodcast.com. I want this show to be a resource for as many people in our audience as it can be, a helpful, reassuring resource. And Lynn Bufka is here with us today to work through some of the very basics of adaptation. Um, you mentioned as we were going to break, Lynn, the idea that our physical distancing, uh, the term we have come to know, social distancing, is about a larger good. And from a psychological perspective, is that something that we should be reminding ourselves of, that we are not confined just for the sake of confinement or we're not like being isolated and it's not punishment, it's for something that can help all of us out over the long run? Certainly, we need to think about it that way. The more we're thinking of this as a very negative punitive kind of experience, that's going to drag us down emotionally and mentally. And sure, it may feel very difficult. But if we can also bear in mind some of the positive reasons that we're doing this, that helps to balance that sense of deprive the deprived feeling a bit more. And so that that does help us get through an experience like this. 
And many people are finding that as they focus on some of the more positive aspects of this, that that's very beneficial to them as well. And I've heard from people who are doing things even like appreciating, we're fortunate in the D.C. area, spring is coming. And if you're able to get outside even to a backyard or around a block, you might see daffodils in bloom, trees in bloom. People are slowing down and really appreciating that. Last year, many people would have just rushed by all of that and not really seen it. Uh, So as we can think about sort of the positive pieces of what it means for us to slow down, to really engage with our local environment, that can help us too as we think about this very stressful kind of experience of of where are we heading and how long is this going to last while trying to balance it with some more positive ways of thinking about the experience. And we'll circle back to some of the positive aspects in a second, but uh, not, and I don't, don't want to dismiss that at all. I want to embrace that, but there are a couple of things you mentioned uh, that I want to spend a little bit of time on uncertainty, ambiguousness, uh, uncertainty, duration, severity. Those are huge concepts. Almost every human being, wants to know if there's a situation that is threatening. They want to know how severe is it and how long is it going to last. And those two things are maybe not unanswerable, but they're certainly uncertain. How much pressure does that put on people? It's very hard for people when things are uncertain. Uh, that That's what feeds into anxiety. We are trying really hard to manage what seems uncertain and to have some control over a situation to feel like we have some capacity to master this thing. And yet we don't necessarily have complete information. We're not sure we always trust the information that we're getting. And at this point, it's really hard to know, well, we have the example that's playing out the way it's played out in China, where containment has really seemed to slow down, if not uh, really reduce the number of infected individuals versus the situation that we're seeing in Italy, where infections continue to increase and there's been significant loss of uh, death and, and death with all of that. So, so we don't know even looking outside of our our current our na- our na- national experience what to expect and so that adds to that feeling of uncertainty and that anxiety and stress that people are experiencing are there methods that uh, you can suggest to help people contextualize that very natural anxious feeling that comes with either not knowing longevity or not knowing severity Sure. What what we need to try to do is get a sense of what is it that um, we do know, what do we feel reasonably comfortable with, and try not to anticipate absolute worst all the time. We don't know what's going to happen, but if we're walking around telling ourselves, oh my gosh, everyone's going to die because of this, or I am never going to get back to work, things are going to fall apart completely, that doesn't help us cope in the immediate. So we need to figure out a way to rein in our anxiety somewhat. Uh, recognize that being anxious and stressed is a natural response to this kind of situation, but find ways to not continue to amplify and escalate our fears and concerns. Because if we're sitting in that cycle of spinning around our fears and concerns, we don't get to the point of figuring out, are there proactive steps I can take to manage my current situation? We get stuck. A real basic question, Lynn, from uh, a therapeutic point of view, is there a way to know if you're in that cycle of spinning? A couple of things. Uh, How much is being anxious, fearful, concerned about coronavirus top of mind for you? Is that really dominating what you're thinking about, what you're doing? Are you So that's the first question. Second, are you able to ever set it aside? Are you able to walk away from it and really enjoy reading a book or playing a card game or having a conversation with a loved one? Um, If you're not able to do that, you're probably very much stuck in a place where where it's really getting um, out of control in a way. And a third question, and this is true for any sort of mental health condition, Are you having difficulties because of this doing the things that you need to do in your day-to-day life? So are you having trouble doing your job if you're still able to work right now, parenting, managing your life at home? If your fears and anxieties are interfering with that, you've definitely gotten to a point where um, some sort of intervention will be important, whether it's reaching out for professional help or really trying to shift how you're managing things at home in order to best better handle the situation that we're all in. All of what you just described led me to think about 
some things that I did when I felt anxious as a child. Uh, we had a big yard in my house in San Diego, and from a kind of an early age, not really super early, but like 10 or so, if I felt anxious, I would often go do yard work. And my parents would be surprised, like, Major, what are you doing yard work for? And I didn't have a really good explanation for them, except I just knew I was feeling anxious. And a task, in this case, mowing the lawn or cleaning out the flower beds, that helped me. Um, I, I know from a sort of metaphorical point of view, it's kind of like grounding and all that sort of stuff, but it was just a task. And are tasks important when you're feeling either anxiety or trying to get out of a pattern of spinning downward? Oh, for certain they are. And what you talked about is exactly what happens to us to help us sort of stop that cycle. So if you give yourself a task and yard work is a great one, it requires some mental effort, might require almost enough to push aside some of the anxiety because you're trying to figure out, is that one a weed or not? Do I need to pull that one out? You might even be getting to the point where, do I want to transplant this plant? So you're requiring some thinking that may push away that anxiety thinking that's going on. You're also physically doing something. When we feel anxious, our physiology gets revved up, but we don't necessarily expend that energy. Well, out there doing yard work or doing a task or cleaning the house or scrubbing the floor, that moves away some of that extra energy that's being generated. That helps us as well in our anxiety and in how we're feeling. It sort of gets our physiology back to a more stable state. And then thirdly, we get a sense of accomplishment afterwards. When we're feeling anxious, part of the challenge is we don't feel like we have control over anything, that we're able to get done any of the things that we need to get done. And if we can find a task and see it done, it reminds us we still have capabilities and we're able to do the things that we need to do in our world. That's the voice of Lynn Bufka, our special guest, PhD in psychology, a psychologist. She's worth the American Psychological Association, working with lots of therapists at this particular time where... We're all a little stressed out because the adaptations we're going through uh, maybe are a new normal. Maybe they're just a new situation. This entire episode is devoted to practical advice about how to approach that adaptation. And we're going to be able to do it, folks, with this show and other tools. I'm Major Garrett, back for segment three in just a second. CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back, folks. So great to have you with us. You know, usually you hear the show or you're watching the show on CBSN, CBSN, because our broadcast center in New York is uh, being cleaned and shut down. We don't have an editor, so this is not a CBSN production for the foreseeable future. It hasn't been for a couple of episodes. For our podcast and our radio audience, we're here for you. I'm really going to Make sure this show is as responsive to your needs as I can intuitively imagine them as we're dealing with COVID-19. And this week, I decided to have a conversation about the psychological side of this. Um, and one of the reasons I landed there is because I thought, you know, if you're watching a lot of television news, you're probably getting as much of the health, the, the critical sort of scientific health information as you might want. But this might be a, a, a segment of the conversation less focused on by News And our special guest is Lynn Bufka. She's a PhD in psychology, very important title with the American Psychological Association, working with a lot of therapists around the country. I want to get to some of that work in a minute, Lynn, but I also wanted to ask you about what I just mentioned, news coverage. Uh, even before COVID-19 came along, uh, several of my friends uh, said, you know, Major, there are times I get too stressed out by watching the news. Well, now, as I've been texting my friends and colleagues around the country, just checking in on them, a lot of them tell me this, and this is probably no surprise to you at all, Lynn. I just can't watch the news. It's either so full, it creates so much anxiety for me or depression or uncertainty. I just have to screen it out, uh, do less of it. Do you recommend that generally? Yes. I, I love what your profession does and the efforts that journalists bring to try to provide us good content and news, but everyone needs to know what their limit is. And in a situation like this, many people feel drawn to always trying to get more information. Maybe that will help manage the uncertainty. Maybe it will help me know what I need to do next. But for most people, they're finding that the constant cycle 
doesn't really give them new information that's going to change from one day to the next significantly how they're managing and what they're doing, but does tend to elevate their anxiety because the news is filled with uncertainty. We don't quite know where we're headed yet. Uh, and that helps to maintain that level of anxiety and stress that many people are feeling. So what do you do with that, right? Right. So a couple of things, um, the, managing your exposure to news, right? Decide how much news you think you need and sort of stick with that. Perhaps identify a few sources that you find to be reliable, trustworthy sources. Go to those once or twice a day to see if there's any updates. Maybe you even need to set a timer and tell yourself, I'm done with the news for the day. I've gotten what I need to know. Or perhaps you decide after eight o'clock at night, I'm done with the news. And I would really encourage people for a couple hours before they're going to go to bed to turn off the news because that will help you to decompress a little bit and hopefully get a better sleep over that. This might be an act of apostasy within my own business, but would you recommend people turn off their news alerts? Some people may want to do that. Absolutely. Because we, you know, alerts on our phone are very reinforcing. We get an alert, we see something. We get alert, we see something. We check it constantly, right? And there's something reinforcing about that experience, but that just trains us to then check, 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 check. And we never have an opportunity to go back to our level of homeostasis, calmness. So if we can turn off those alerts and set our own boundaries around when we check news, that gives us a greater sense of control. It doesn't mean we're staying uninformed, but it means that we're making more decisions about what's the right level of news exposure for us. Right. Uh, I want to ask you about an experience I had last week. Uh, I had uh, attempted, uh, my wife and I, to have a, a bit of a vacation. Uh, it was not that practical, but we, we, we went to Tucson and uh, for a couple of days it was nice, but then COVID-19 began to tighten everything up there. So we flew back last Thursday and through three different airports, Tucson, uh, George H.W. Bush in Houston and Washington, D.C., Reagan, uh, the airport was almost empty. And I want to describe something to you, Lynn, and I want you to have your reaction to it. So in each of the airports, they were, as I've described it to my friends, it's like being, it was like being in a museum five minutes before closing time virtually empty and immaculate um, and very disconcerting. And I suddenly came upon this realization that all those times I'd been in an airport and I do a fair amount of travel in my career, I thought all that hustle bustle was kind of vaguely annoying and I wish people were out of my way. But Lynn, I will tell you the absence of people I suddenly realized how much I hungered for that hustle and bustle, how psychologically reassuring it was all those previous times and how deeply disconcerting it was not to see it. Uh, I think that is something that people are going through in other ways, whether they're at an airport or not, just seeing streets that are much more vacant than they typically are, walking by a familiar restaurant and seeing it closed or a dry cleaner or a nail salon or something and knowing it's closed and knowing there's nothing there. That absence of activity, I don't know, for me, was deeply... Um, affecting. And I'd like to have your observations about just that part of what we're going through collectively. Well, I think there's a couple of things there. One, it's different from what we consider normal. So it's a reminder that we're in a different situation, that this doesn't feel like the way our life normally does. And so the idea that it's different brings us up again to the fact that we're in this place of uncertainty, that there's this potential threat out there. Am I doing the things I need to do to manage the threat and the, my concern? So there's sort of that piece of it. There's also human beings are social beings. We like being connected to others. Some people really thrive on hustle and bustle and really get energy from that. Others, not as much, but almost all of us like feeling connected to others in some fashion or another. I've heard many people talk about how sad they are without seeing their regular barista, right? Mm. Or the person that knew, or I miss my bus drivers. I take public transit. I'm not seeing my bus drivers. And I usually can get a good smile from them in the morning. And that's a nice way to begin my day. And those kinds of connections we're missing. So whether it's sort of a departure from our normal, as well as not having our connections with the people who make our life 
consistent and meaningful. That's hard. It is hard. And um, shifting our conversation back to being at home again, um, how much do you suggest uh, that during these times uh, with, their, as we've discussed, uncertainty and ambiguity, uh, families devote some time each day to just sort of working through where they're at uh, emotionally? Like, and it may, may sound kind of uh, like leading the family witnesses, but how are you feeling? Do you recommend that as just an exercise, something that you should build into part of each day? Every family is going to handle this situation differently. So for some families, that will be really important to do. Maybe it's not as direct about how you're feeling, particularly if families aren't particularly comfortable yet with uh, using their feelings. But use it as an opportunity to connect. Tell me about your day. What did you do? How are you spending it? What do you think is different about this? Were there any benefits to today? What do you miss? And that may be a way to sort of open up the conversation and really connect to the people that you live with in ways that in the long run are going to be very beneficial and powerful. The more that we understand each other and feel that intimate connection really does foster those bonds with the people assuming that you really care about and you love uh, and that you are going to sustain you in the long haul. Well, I, I hear you when you say not every family is, uh, let us say, hep to the idea of speaking their feelings. But to your practical example a second ago, how was your day? Well, right now, everyone knows how Wednesday is. It's right there in front of you uh, if you're all at home. Uh, and that seems like something to at least at some level try to discuss or work through the idea of this this proximity that is also so new absolutely and and how did it work for you or or is there anything we could do differently to make it easier for you to get your schoolwork done while mommy's trying to work or how could we share the load with trying to keep the house clean? You know, even basic things like that will open opportunities to talk to the family, get their perspective on things. So we might be seeing what people are doing all day long, but we don't know what they're thinking. So the more that we have those chances to have the conversation about what they're really thinking about will help us also to understand them as individuals and people who are, are dealing with this differently than how we all might be dealing with it. The great question of humanity. What are you really thinking? Uh, our special guest this week, Lynn Bufka. This show is here for you each and every week, but especially this week, talking about the therapeutic side, rather, of dealing with this new situation. Uh, maybe we create a new normal. Maybe we define things differently. But what we know for sure is we're adapting. And I want the show to be a resource for you as we all collectively and individually go through that adaptation. Our special guest, Lynn Bufka, she's a PhD psychologist with the American Psychological Association. Lynn, I want to talk to you a little bit about what you're doing in your job to help therapists around the country, because I'm sure their, their jobs aren't changing, but the demands on them are. One of the major challenges right now Psychotherapy so often is conducted in the same room with the person that you're meeting with. But right now, that doesn't make sense to do it that way, right? That's, that's harder to have that physical distance. We thankfully know that when you provide therapy via video conferencing and telephone, you can have just as good outcomes using technology, but many people haven't done it a whole lot. So what we're working very hard is trying to help our, our psychologists and other professionals figure out how to transition to telehealth. And we're seeing that through all of healthcare. Primary care doctors are trying to figure out what kinds of services can I provide over the phone, through phone consultations versus when does someone need to be in my office. So that's going to change healthcare down the road. But there's lots of legal and logistical challenges. It's having the right technology to do that. It's ensuring that other payers, healthcare insurance, Medicare, Medicaid will pay for services provided via technology. It's working to make sure that the person receiving care has adequate technology and that you're able to deliver care. So we've been working hard to ensure that our members feel that they have beginning competencies in doing this and doing it well so that they can sustain providing care to the people who really need it. And we talked earlier, and I promised our audience that we would get back to this, sort of the positive side of the potential or the potential positive side of what we're going through. And I don't want to suggest to people that positivism itself is the only 
answer, but it is not an irrelevant approach either in state of mind or as a practical reality. For example, uh, what you went through last week, perhaps if you were working home for the first time, will be different your second week because, as you mentioned right off the top, Lynn, we are an adaptable species. We create all sorts of different realities as we learn. And maybe the second week at home feels a bit more manageable than that first chaotic week at home where nobody knew where to work and uh, the children didn't know how to inter interact with their parents because everyone was stuffed into the house for the first time. Maybe now you create different uh, either boundaries or rituals. Talk a little bit more about this idea that things can work out and each and every day as we're evolving through this can get better. Certainly. It's it's no doubt about it. This is going to be a really hard time, particularly for people who are not able to work from home, who need to get out in the world or who are not working right now. This very, very difficult time with a lot of uncertainty and fear about what, what could happen both now and long term. But each day as we try to figure out how to do this, we've got to walk into it realizing that everybody else in our household is also struggling with this. So can we have a little more grace and patience with the people that we live with? Perhaps we lower our expectations a little bit about the amount of screen time the kids have or uh, what kinds of uh, cleanliness we expect in terms of the immediacy of kids getting their dishes to the sink. You know, um, certainly we want to do good infection control and all of that. But think about how, what are the things that you need to get your household running smoothly and where might you relax a little bit in terms of the toys can stay out in the living room till the end of the day. If that's what keeps the kids busy and occupied while you as an adult are trying to do the things that you need to do in order to keep the household moving along. So that's part of what we need to do. And then in the midst of all that, there can be some really amazing moments. Uh, maybe you're spending more time with your kids and seeing them in different ways than you would normally do. Maybe you're having the opportunity to slow down and connect with people in a new way to try to find some ways to reach out to neighbors or family members who might be distant. Maybe you're getting your kids to draw pictures and send them to older family members to let them know you're, that everybody's thinking of each other right now. So there are ways you can find some moments that are a little more joyful, a little more positive in the midst of trying to figure out how do we decide what our new practices and routines are going to be. What about the idea of a family diary? What do you mean by that? Well, like just recording, like we're in this amazing experience. The whole country's going through it. What did we do today? Maybe you do that on an iPhone uh, as like a video chat, or maybe you write something down or one of the children rotates one day or the other, just writing down, here are the four things that happened to the family today. Just an idea of memorializing this very, different kind of time and experience. Sure. I love it. I mean, there's lots of wonderful things about that. There's things that the family can get from that. Maybe each person says, what's one thing I did today that I wouldn't have normally done? Or what's something I learned today that maybe I wouldn't have learned under other circumstances? Or if your kids are, if you're wanting to keep your kids learning, maybe that you have them do the writing uh, and write down their observations about it. There's a very funny one circulating on social media right now about a kid talking about mom's totally losing it, trying to teach us. And it's really cute the way the kid wrote it out. Um, <laughs> but those perspectives, we got to laugh right now, too. And keeping those moments of what's funny and what's tough helps us at the end look back and realize we did this. We, we came through it. And Lynn, one thing I want to talk to you a little bit about is uh, for those in our audience who have older family members, uh, uncles, aunts, parents, uh, anyone in the uh, elder years of their lives, they're probably more anxious about them than anyone else. Absolutely. And I'm right there with the people in the audience thinking about older family members. And we're, we're concerned about ours as well. And we've been really trying to think about how can we connect when we're not physically with them. My father and I are going to try to play cribbage over the phone tonight, you know, where we're going to deal cards in our respective homes and then play the game uh, while we're while we're talking to each other. We're planning Zoom conversations. Uh, I've heard of people, you know, writing notes to family members and sending things in the mail. People love getting snail mail. So there's ways that you can try to connect to make sure the people you know and you love know that you are thinking of them and care for them. Because in the end, no matter what happens, what we want 
is for our family members to know that they're valued. So finding ways to connect and communicate that with the people we love really makes an important difference right now. And also there's a heightened sense of awareness about potential risks for those who are in the older uh, category, 60, 70, and 80. Absolutely. You know, and it brings up all sorts of questions about, you know, our own existence and mortality. Um, It's scary stuff to think about that. I think all of us realize that our time on earth is limited and with older family members, our time with them is not growing any longer. But now you're facing this potential that we don't know what's going to happen and how we're going to control it because we can't. So in the interim, think about what is it you would like to have happen. You know, if my fear happens that something bad happens to my mom or my dad or my uncle, what would I like that person to know in the end? That I was thinking about them, that I love them, that I care for them, and how do I convey that in all sorts of different ways? Thinking about the preciousness of time. Our time with you, Lynn Bufka, has been very precious. For our radio audience, it's the end of the show, but for our podcast listeners, please stick around for the Takeout Outtake Especial. Lynn Bufka, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, and we'll see you again next week, folks. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. So great to have you with us. I've told you in the main show, but I want to reiterate it because it's something that we're going to return to each and every episode. For as long as the country is collectively and individually experiencing all of the new realities of COVID-19, we at the show are going to try to be as helpful as possible with conversations that are both practical and we hope immersive and a refuge for you via radio, podcast, and we hope over time when everything gets back to a functioning state of being in our broadcast center in New York, CBSN. And we're doing all this from home, of course. Nobody's at a restaurant. Our show, which has lived and breathed and thrived in restaurants, because I've always believed that restaurants and mealtime creates a kind of different and more intimate conversation. Well, can't do that right now for obvious reasons. So I'm on my laptop. I'm at home. My producer and dear friend Arden Fari is the same. And our guest this week, Lynn Bufka, PhD in psychology in psychology with the American Psychological Association, has been helping us go through some of the basic practical aspects of dealing with the psychology, the therapeutic side, if you will, of COVID-19. So Lynn, it's great to have you back for our takeout outtake especial. So let's continue our conversation. Um when we left the radio version of this, we were talking about concerns people might have about uh, the elderly members of their family. And uh, we kind of ended with this idea of the time that family members have with those who are elderly in their family is not going to get any longer. And we kind of talked about the preciousness of time. It feels to me, Lynn, and correct me if I'm wrong, that that's something that is going to be true for all of us right now. The preciousness of what this is and what it's sort of showing or revealing to us by what has, if not been taken away, put on the back burner for a while, which is all this social interaction, the hustle and bustle. We have a moment or an opportunity here to kind of focus on what we're missing and what the value of those things actually are. We do. And and it's one of the things that I've been trying very hard to embrace, to try to think about what are the benefits here? What can I learn? How can I show some grace to others? How can I appreciate these moments that maybe I wouldn't have had? Uh, the quietness in my house in the morning that I love but rarely get. So it's a, it's a wonderful opportunity to do that, but it's hard sometimes to do it. Finding those moments can make it a little bit easier as we're going through moments, a bigger time of uncertainty. So one of my friends texted me over the weekend that he and his wife had just gone through their church service online. Uh, And they said that was a very different experience. But we've had this has kind of been a theme that's gone through our conversation. Technology is at least giving us methods that uh, are and would have been unimaginable 20 years ago to at least partially recreate some of these experiences. A church service via your laptop. I mean, wow. That's t- that's a totally different adaptation as well. Yeah, I had one of those over the weekend too, and it was wonderful. We really felt connected to each other. And in some ways, it felt like a more powerful spiritual experience than sitting in the building. No kidding. 
because I was face to face with people looking directly at each person much closer than when I'm in a big building and I'm farther away from people. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it was really a lovely experience. And that goes to another one of the themes that we've had in this conversation is one I want to revisit because I do think it's so important, this idea that we can adapt. And as we do, we not only learn, but we teach. Uh, If we're in any kind of family situation or you have anyone, even if you're living by yourself, as you interact with your friends, you are adapting and learning. And we're all sort of teaching one another. We are, and we're, and I'm seeing all kinds of great exchanges for ideas like virtual coffee hours, or everybody get online at eight o'clock and do a Facebook chat, and we're going to talk about these three things, or opportunities to connect, um, just even over the phone of setting up a standing phone conversation with a, a dear friend that you always want to reach out to, but life gets to be so busy. And now you're both like, you know, I'm not commuting anymore. I've got plenty of time to talk. So taking advantage of those kinds of opportunities really is so beneficial to our beings. And I want to ask you about something that uh, I think about some with some frequency, which is how technology and how the various a proliferation of either media outlets or television networks or ways to which we can kind of silo ourselves uh, into a non-common experience. Um, people, the reason I bring this up is people frequently talk to me about their memories of watching television, say the 60s or 70s and 80s when there were very few channels and everyone sort of was at the same place. And I kind of gave it a metaphorical imagery of uh the flickering light blue campfire, the television that we all watch the same shows or the same news broadcasts are more or less the same. And as things have become more atomized, we've become more apart from one another. This strikes me as a collective experience. You're texting a friend, you're living the exact same reality, though different in your community. We all know what we're talking about. This is a common experience. Is that at any level, Lynn, uh, psychologically reassuring and kind of a place from which we can stand and and find some footing? It certainly reminds us that we have a lot more in common than we have differences when we're all going through the same thing. We saw that happen after 9-11, where communities really came together and supported one another. And I think we'll see this now, too, as communities really figure out where are our priorities as a community? What are our values? What, what matters most to us in our friendship circle, in our family? We're all trying to figure out this new experience we're going through. And what is it really important to us? What What's what means the most to us and what might mean the most to a group is let's share some good times over a, a, a book and talk about what that's been like. Or let's even just enjoy a way to have a outdoor barbecue. Even if you're in another state, I'm just going to sit on my deck, eat my hamburger. You sit on your little balcony eating your hamburger and we'll talk about what we're going through. So, Lynn, we can't let you go, and we can't end this conversation without the three threshold questions. Uh, you're somewhat familiar with them. Each and every guest has been asked them, and their answers are a delight to our audience because they are in their own way. A little bit of revealing about uh, who they are. So, in whatever order you prefer, uh, most influential book in your life, uh, your all-time favorite movie, or one of your favorite movies, and if you're on a long flight or a long drive, I know you're not on a long flight in all likelihood right now, but... The idea is if you are going to indulge in music, what kind of artist or genre would you find most indulgent? So um, one of my favorite books, well, the book that really inspired me to think about people and think about people in a different way and what we're capable of is a book that was written by a Holocaust survivor, Man's Search for Meaning, that really helped his process of what it meant for him to survive a concentration camp. He went on to become a a neurologist and psychiatrist. And so Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl really influenced me in my college years because it gave me a perspective into what people are capable of and what they are capable of overcoming. And maybe that's something we all need to be thinking about right now. No doubt. Yeah. In terms of movies, I have a reputation in my household of uh, not really watching a lot of movies. Um, But there are some really fabulous movies out there. And I like anything that's going to be a nice escape uh, is going to lift me up a little bit and make me laugh. Uh, I don't like super scary movies or anything like that. 
Of course, the classic in our house is Sound of Music. I can probably recite almost every bit of dialogue and sing along with the entire production, which you don't want me to do. Um, but it always <laughs> lifts me up to have that experience. Um, well, when this is all over and we're on the, when we're on the other side of this and movie theaters are back open again, I hope you get a chance, if you haven't already in your life, to go to a Sound of Music sing-along in a big theater. Yeah, my my sister-in-law and I would be right there front and center. My best friend and I could <laughs> do the lines together because, of course, we did that when we were kids when the TV was the campfire we all sat around. So it would be exactly. a delight to do that again. So um, music itself. So no surprise, given that I like to sing along. I like music I can sing to in the car. So for me, that's going to be a lot of classic 80s rock because that's what I grew up with. But anything that I can understand the words and feel comfortable singing along with – keeps me going on a long car trip. I also grew up in Michigan, so I have a deep fondness for all Motown music. So that's usually what's alternating on my radio as I'm on a long car trip. Can't go wrong with either 80s rock or Motown under any circumstance, any day, any any time of year. Uh, Lynn Buffett's been a delight to talk with you. Thank you so much for helping our audience and my audience. Uh, and uh, when I said we get on the other side of this, uh, I promise we'll have a proper meal and another conversation. That sounds wonderful. I look forward to that. And I do hope that everybody can see that there will be another side to this, that we will get through it and we'll have some new strengths we didn't realize we had. Excellent. Thanks so much, Lynn. Thank you. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital edition wherever you get your books.